since the time is very limited, um, I, I'll not ask any question answer thing. I mean, I'm more into this like conversation so that we can, I can tell, tell you a bit of stories and then you will try to explain it through the lens of a compassionate economist. Does it sound okay? Yes, sounds it sounds excellent. <laughs> so that's the plan. Um, so the the first story I will tell is my story. My story is me and my wife both work full time. Uh, I'm in the academia and my wife works in the health sector, and I've got two young kids. Um, so our expenditure our expenditure is basically our mortgage, the energy bills day-to-day food stuff and for the young kids you know the other things so last three years we are facing serious problem with our financial well-being every month we get some kind of deficit and what we do i've got a very elderly mom who is 78 years old she's a pensioner and she actually gives us 300 400 pound every month to top up because we are struggling so we are talking about we we have a decent income and we are struggling with our kind of income. And then I saw the other news that there are like 15 million people in UK are actually facing this relative poverty. And out of this 15 million people, actually 4 million people are actually children. And some of them are in extreme poverty. So right. what's going on, Professor? <laughs> okay. Um, so let me respond I will talk mostly about about England, about Great Britain and all of that. But I should begin by telling your audience that almost the exact same experience that you just described is going on for millions and millions of people here in the United States. So it is a very common, familiar process. Um, we don't have the immediate urgency of your uh, electricity and fuel and energy bills because of the um, the the Ukraine, the, the sanctions don't impact the United States the way they did Europe, which I should mention to you is why they're there, because it was a cheap maneuver for the United States, and it's a difficult maneuver for the Europeans. I cannot comment on why the Europeans accept such an arrangement. Strikes me as foolish, but it's for you in Europe to make those decisions. But I can assure you, Americans who follow this are finding it bizarre that the um, United States policy is so much more damaging uh, to Europe than to the United States. This might have suggested to Europeans, if they were independent, to suggest either coming to a, an agreement with Russia about Ukraine or coming up with other policies than those that have been chosen since they are uniquely damaging to Europe. And, and let me drive the point home. The Germans have now nationalized both German and Russian enterprises. They're a society that says they don't believe in nationalization. Well, they just did. 
They've also agreed to spend billions of dollars subsidizing their own energy companies at taxpayer expense to accommodate a sanctions program organized by the United States in its struggle against Russia. And now the last point. The United States' struggle against Russia isn't against Russia. The United States' struggle is against China. Here in the United States, there is an acute awareness that the threat to the hegemony of the United States, economically, politically, culturally, and militarily, comes from China. And that the reason to fight in Ukraine is hopefully to weaken the ally China has in Russia. That's all. And the United States is prepared to fight to the last Ukrainian and to spend money to the last euro or pound that it costs. And that's a political reality within which you really need to think if you're going to take global uh, conditions in. Okay. Next step. Capitalism has always been a dynamic system. In other words, think of it the way um, ancient people uh, thousands of years ago who depended on herds of reindeer or herds of cattle. They had them in a certain place, but then when there was no more grass to eat, the people put their belongings on their back and moved with their animals to another place where the grass was green and the animals could eat and the people could live from the animals and so on. Well, Capitalism is like that. Capitalism goes in one place, makes a great deal of money, tries to organize that area to keep making money. But if they run out of money where they are, they move just like the ancient people with their herds of animals. So, for example, England back in the 18th century, is the beginning, more or less, of modern capitalism. But very quickly, capitalism moved from England to Western Europe, eventually from England and Western Europe to North America, and then to Japan, and then to, you know the story. Okay, when that happened, tensions began to arise between the old center of capitalism, Britain, and the new centers of capitalism, Western Europe, North America, and Japan. The British, being the first ones, were able to set up the first capitalist global empire, the British Empire. You know, what you all celebrated last week in the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Okay. 
by the way, that was the death not only of a queen. It was the final chapter in the death of an empire. And the symbolism was remarkable in exposing that. Anyway, let me finish my story. The new centers to which capitalism moved, North America, Western Europe, Japan, began to clash, to conflict with the British. They wanted to hold on to an empire they controlled, to a capitalism that was global but controlled and profitable mostly for the center. But the rest of them didn't want it. The Americans, the Germans, and the Japanese. And every one of them went to war with Britain in order to get their independence. That's how this was dealt with. In the United States, the War of 1776, then again the War of 1812, you know, in which 100,000 people were killed by the British. You know, this was a bitter war. Uh, and you know, probably better than I do, what the British Empire did in the partitions of India and Pakistan and in all the other places where they governed. Um, capitalism moved on. The British tried to stop it. They failed. They failed. Even with world wars against the Germans, against the Japanese, the British failed. Across the 19th century and into the 20th, the British Empire collapsed. And it was replaced by one of the three challengers. Not the Japanese, not the Germans, the United States. So for the last century, the United States has dominated and controlled an American empire. That is now over. It's been over at least since the 1980s and 90s, but it is completely gone now. And it is very clear in the world where the next empire looks to be coming from. And it's called China. And everyone who pays attention knows it. What we also have to understand is that it's still capitalism. Capitalism moved from England to the rest of the world. Now capitalism has moved and its powerful productive center is in China or India or Brazil or all of the other places to which it has come. Capitalism is dynamic. Okay, what does this mean? When an economy goes down, when a, a, a growth period is followed by a decline, which has happened to every empire in human history, the ancient Mongol empires, the ancient Frankish empires, Greek, Roman, it doesn't really matter. They have a period going up and then they have a period going down. When they go down, it gets ugly. Why? Because the people who used to be governing the world now watch every day that they govern less and less and less. And then begins a very ugly struggle. Can the people who became the rich, the dominant, the ruling class, 
hold on to their wealth. And in a declining system, the only way for them to hold on is if they offload, if they pass on the costs of a declining empire onto the mass of people. That's what's happening in Britain. Britain is becoming what it originally was, a small, cold, offshore island of the continent of Europe. And this is very difficult because the elite of that country want to believe that they are the gold crown sitting on the coffin of Queen Elizabeth. They want, uh, they want all that symbolism. They want all that. They want to put into power your woman there, trust. Unbelievable that after 50 years of offloading the cost of a declining empire onto the British working class by them, by the conservatives. I know that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were there too, but basically this is the neoliberal program for England and that the English working class have not been able to mobilize either in the Labour Party or in some new configuration to stop this process, well, you know that much better than I do why that is happening, because you are there. And because of the very interesting position of Scotland in the middle of all of this, because it is it is not England, and that no. that is clear in a hundred different ways. But I think the important thing to understand is that it's not about you, the particular British. Very similar things are happening here in the United States, and they're happening in France, and they're happening in Germany, and they're happening in Italy. What you need to see is that most of what passes as politics mm. is really a, a process of managing keeping the super rich rich and making the burden, the costs of a declining empire fall on the mass of people. In Britain, the most unspeakable example, and maybe because Britain is the great empire that has been collapsing for a century, but to for us here in the United States, to watch the struggle over Brexit, mm. that was fantastic for us. Here you were able to destroy, you know, watch the empire fall apart, watch the rich hold on to what they could, force the mass of the British people to absorb a shrinking standard of living, and then convince that mass of people that the problem wasn't the end of the empire and a, and a dying capitalism that had gone on to be dynamic and progressive in China and India and so forth. No, the problem was the poor Europeans on the other side of the English Channel. I mean, this was so ridiculous. I remember meetings here in the United States in which professors, and not just left-wingers, even right-wing professors, we would sit in a seminar room. We couldn't believe that we were watching the British people do this amazingly irrelevant politics. You know what that's like? That's like here in the United States, 
where we are facing very similar situations. The American empire is dying. We are not a, a century into it the way you are. We are at the earlier stages, but mm. we are trying very hard to learn nothing of what the British went through. We couldn't learn from that. We're trying very hard not to. We distract our people, for example, by something else, which you also do in England, but we're better at it than you are. We have decided that in a, hear me out now, in a country of 325 million people, that's the population of the United States, we have an immigrant movement of of people, mostly from Central America, places like Guatemala, Costa Rica, Honduras, El Salvador, those places, who come to the United States as they have been doing for a century. They come here because Latin America is the American empire. It is falling apart. They can't survive. So they come here. The total number of, of undocumented uh, immigrants, maximum estimate, 10 million people, maximum, mm. Mm. okay? 10 million of the poorest people in the country. These are immigrants who come with nothing. The shirt on their back, the baby on their shoulder, that's what they have, right? And they're prepared to work at the worst jobs for the worst pay. 10 million of them, maximum. In a country of 325 million. But we have a political struggle in which the millions of Americans believe that the immigrants are a cause of their problems and that expelling these immigrants, which we are doing, and by the way, in case anyone listens and is interested in American politics, Mr. Obama expelled immigrants, Mr. Trump expelled immigrants, and as I'm talking to you, Mr. Biden is not only expelling immigrants, he's building the wall that Trump began but never finished. Mr. Biden is finishing the wall. Because of the damage done by immigrants? Of course not. Here's how funny it is. We are speaking over the last six months in the United States about a labor shortage. We have a labor shortage, particularly of people willing to work at low-income jobs. You know why we have a shortage? Because we expelled immigrants. So we complain about the immigrants, and we complain about the shortage, but our politics makes that front-page news. When that is in front page news, abortion is front page news. In other words, we here find distractions for our working class just as you do. We don't call it Brexit, but it is exactly the same thing. The great fear here is that the mass of people understand what is happening to them, see it as connected with the capitalist system and its empire, and then become critics of that empire. That's our politics. That's what we do. But I think you are witnessing, and and you tell your story very beautifully, because in a way it just comes like like, like 
rain from the sky. It comes down on you that uh, there's a joke here in the United States that the problem of the working class is that at the end of every month, there's too much month for the money. In other words, you don't get enough money for the whole month. Mm. You'll finish with your money, but there's still months to go, uh, days of the month to go. So it, it's a, it's, it's what I look at as a political person. Mm. I look at as the early stages of a revolutionary movement. It, people are beginning to feel the absurdity of their economic system. I mean, for us to watch, Britain has, I believe, the one of the highest inflation rates of any country in Europe, right? Um, Britain has lost real wages since 2008, worse than most parts of Europe. I mean, the, for you to have a billions of dollars in that royal family paraded in front of you when you could have could have had a modest imagine a queen or a king who said this is a country in difficulty we are not going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a spectacle mm -hmm. the best way to honor queen elizabeth if that's what you want to do is to say we're going to use that money that wealth to rebuild, to support the British people. Mm. Whoa. Imagine with me what message that would have sent, what political change that, mm. but that nobody proposed it, or I mean, maybe somebody did and I don't know about it. But <laughs> here in the United States, all we saw was lots of lots of money spent on what nobody could justify. Mm. Unless, unless the, uh, and you tell me, unless the British people would mm. prefer to spend money on the symbol of royalty, mm. a symbol of a great wealth and power that is in the distant past and is never coming back. Mm. If that's so important to hold on to, then maybe I should understand all the pageantry that way. Mm. Um, Professor, I, I, I think a couple of things I really want to add here. Um, so the Prince Charles, now King Charles III, he has got, I just checked today that his net worth is 500 million pound. He's sitting on 500 million pound. Right. So the funeral cost, I think, figure is not there. I, I can assume that, you know, 20 million, 25 million, 30 million, we don't know. But right. it looks like, and, and then I did a search that who will pay for it? And this is the taxpayers, straight away. Yes. So yes. I mean, how does it work? So if you see like UK's economy in terms of billionaires economy, in 2019, the figure is like there were 115, 151 billionaires. This year, you have got 177 billionaires. How does right. it work? So like, you know, so we are seeing the crisis in our lives, 95% of the people, but the other people looks like they're doing really, really well. And which reminds me this like famous, you know, this funny quote by the random famous rich people. Uh, the quote is, some days I recuperate, 
and the other days I speculate. Yeah. And I think the third line will be, and another day I became a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, <laughs> let, let me give you a partial answer. Uh, in economic, I've been a professor of economics all my life, so I've had to teach, you know, many, many students what an inflation is. Mm. And we are experiencing, as you know, and as you have in the, in the United Kingdom, a very bad inflation, which is likely going to get worse. Mm. <laughs> okay. So when I explain the inflation, my students understand it. It's no great mystery. Um, and the conclusion of my analysis is that inflation is a weapon in the class war between the employer class and the employee class. That's how I teach it. Mm. Now, that's not the way most of my colleagues teach it. But I teach it, and I have often offered to debate anyone, anywhere, anytime about this, which I have done from time to time. And I'm very pleased to tell you that nobody has ever given me any reason to change what I'm about to tell you. Mm. Okay. Here in the United States right now, the official, official, which isn't very accurate, but it's the official inflation rate, is about 8.5% per year, prices going up. Okay? The official rate of increase of wages in this country, paid to workers, is about 5%, roughly. Okay, you don't need to be have a PhD in economics, I can assure you, to understand that if a worker gets 5% more, but everything the worker has to buy is 8.5% more, the worker is losing his standard of living that worker is going to experience what you described at the beginning of this conversation, exactly that experience. We can't function. And let me remind you, the 5% increase of wages is the average. Mm. That means millions and millions and millions of our workers don't get 5%. Mm. And so they got hurt even more. The poorer you are, the more you are damaged by inflation. So not only is inflation a way of expanding the rich, because remember, employers are the ones who set the prices. Mm. Employees don't do that. First lesson of inflation. Mm. Inflation means rising prices. In a capitalist system, who sets the prices? Employers. Employers are less than 1% of the population. So an inflation is when the employer class, less than 1% of the people, raise the prices that the other 99% have to pay. Okay, this is a mechanism for redistributing wealth. It means that the rich employers can raise the money they get mm. faster than what they have to give to their workers. So the the workers are in trouble because even if they get 5%, they can't buy. And who gets the rest of the wealth that they can no longer afford? The people at the top because they're raising the prices, the employers. Hmm. Now, if you ask the employer, 
why are you raising prices? Which is the same as asking the question, why is there an inflation? Because they're the ones who make an inflation. If the employer didn't raise the prices, there wouldn't be an inflation. Inflation, for example, is not caused by the government printing more money Mm. or putting more money into the economy. That's a mistake. Mm. But it's not an innocent mistake. If the government puts more money in the economy, it means you and I can have more money in our hands and we go to the store. When we go to the store, the storekeeper knows that people have more money in their pocket. Hmm. He knows it better than the people do. Hmm. He then has, here we go now, a choice to make the employer in a free enterprise system. He can either raise the price because he knows we all have more money, or or he cannot raise the price, but order more goods and sell us more because we have more money with which to buy. Hmm. If the employer class chooses to order more goods, then there is no inflation. In fact, better news, if more goods are going to be sold, there'll be more jobs for people to make those goods. But we don't insist on controlling our enterprises. We have a free enterprise system, which gives to the 1% of people who are employers the freedom to cause all of us grief when the money supply goes up because they raise prices. You know, when you go to talk to the businessmen and women, the employer, And you tell them all of this and you say, well, you know, what do you have to say? They will never tell you the following truth. Here it is, real simple. We raise prices because it's the best profitable strategy we have. In business school, where I have taught, we teach businessmen and women that every basic decision made in a business has to be focused on profit as the bottom line. Do you undertake an investment? Answer, if it's profitable. How do you choose between two investments? You choose the one that's more profitable. Every decision you make, including are you going to raise prices? Answer, if it's a profitable strategy, I will do it. If it isn't a profitable strategy, I won't. So the honest answer to why we have an inflation that redistributes wealth from wage earners to employers, the answer is because it's profitable for employers to do that. But of course, they do not say so. Because if they said so, it would be easier for me to do my job, which is to mobilize the critics. Mm. So they come up with other stories. Mm. It is, here, here are the ones popular today. Supply chain disruptions yep. or government monetary policy or excess generosity helping the workers through the pandemic. Whatever they can think of to remove the focus on their decision 
to raise the prices because that was their best profit-making strategy. You live in a system that is highly developed. It is a system that rips off the mass of people, does it night and day, and has long ago developed the kind of bullshit, that's what we call it in this country, to make the workers not understand it, to make the workers not see it, to focus the workers' attention somewhere else. You know, it is, that's how this system survives. Mm. And when that breaks down, which, by the way, it is, Mm. frustratingly slowly, I admit, I'm frustrated, it's too slow. But it is happening, Mm. and I know, because who I am, uh, here in the United States, I know that the, the people who understand things, who sit at the top here in the United States, they know it too. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I mentioned to people, I'll mention it to you too. Uh, I got my PhD in economics, Yale University, one of the elite universities. Mm-hmm. And my classmate, who took the same courses I did, who sat in the same room, listening to the same professor, Hmm. was Janet Yellen, who's the secretary of the Treasury here now, right? I know exactly what those folks are thinking about. They understand their system is in difficulty. And they know that it's very important now, more important than ever before, to pretend that it isn't in the hope that acting like they're still in charge will actually somehow magically make them in charge. It's a little bit like in Britain. If you have a funeral for the queen that looks like you're in the middle of the 19th century, and maybe it's Queen Victoria, maybe if you pretend, it really will be like Queen Victoria, and you will be the great British Empire. It's kind of foolish, But people who are needy do things like that. We're doing that now. We are pretending. Part of the whole Ukraine is that. It's pretending that the United States can decide what happens. You know, if we want to fight Russia, we will. If we want to send our ships to the straits uh, between Taiwan and the People's Republic of China, we will send our, we are powerful. Hmm. It is, it is watching frightened children act. Hmm. Hmm. One one more thing here. I mean, um, you talked about this Treasury Secretary. I mean, that reminds me your famous Treasury Secretary in the 1930s, Andrew Mellon. Um, yes. I quite like his one of his famous quotes. His famous quotes, uh, one of the best one is like, he says that crisis is always good because in a crisis, the assets always come back to its original owner, i.e. him, the rich people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like, so like, do you think like these people really love crisis? Like war, you know, this like... No, 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 no. <laughs> they hate them. They hate them. Because every one of these crises becomes a challenge. Because there are always people like me. Mm. And I'm happy to tell you I am not unique. I am not alone. I'm not isolated. 
I have more colleagues, more people like me working here in the United States than at any time in my lifetime. And I was born here in the United States. Mm. I mean, if, if you, if, if there were, there is no such thing, but if there were a measure of the strength of criticism of capitalism, mm. I've never seen it as strong as it is right now. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't this strong in the 1960s. The last time you had this kind of a, be- was the 1930s the great crisis of the Great Depression. Mm. And so, I no, I don't, I, I think that's bravado. I think Mr. Mellon was trying in the midst of the 30s to act like they all had it under control. They didn't. You know, the politics of the world, including Great Britain, is shaped by what happened in the 1930s. We are still living that that experience. The 1930s, was a complete collapse of capitalism. People have to understand, between 1929, October, when it begins, and basically 1940, 41, when what finally lifts us out of the Depression was war, the Second World War. In that period of time, industry in the United States collapsed. The unemployment rate in 1933 was 25%. One out of every four workers was without work, which means every single family had either a mother, a father, a cousin, an uncle, somebody who was out of work, had Mm. no income because we had no unemployment insurance then, and so had to lean on savings, which they didn't have, or to lean on other members of the family at a time when they were terrified about what was happening to their jobs and their... I mean, it was a catastrophe. And in that catastrophe, the American working class went to the left. Very important. Not to the right. That's what they're doing now. But in the 1930s, they went to the left. You had explosion of the greatest labor organizing uh, period in American history. In a matter of five years, you organized tens of millions of Americans. These people had never been in a union before. No. Their parents had never been in a union. They had no experience. No, no, They joined the unions to save themselves. And allied with the unions were two socialist parties and a communist party. And they were large and they were strong and they worked together, even though they had disagreements. You know, the Trotsky, Stalin, all that stuff. Mm. They worked together and they produced a left-wing turn. They went to the president, Roosevelt, and they said to him, you have to help the mass of people in this country in this depression. Mm. If you do, we will make you the most successful president in the country's history. And if you don't, you won't be elected to be the official dog catcher in this country. You're finished. That's what they told him. Mm. And he was a good politician. He understood that they were able to mobilize 30 to 40 million votes. He could not, he could not say no. So he went back. He was a billion, you know, he was a millionaire of that time. 
uh, he, he, he was a descendant of the Roosevelt family that had another president earlier, et cetera, et cetera. So he went to his people, his business associates, told them what he had been told and said, okay, I've got to take care of the people. And the government has no money because we have millions of people unemployed. Nobody's paying taxes. So the only place I can go to get the money, he looks around the room, is you. You rich people have the money. So you're going to have to give me the money that I'm going to spend to take care of the mass of people. Half of the people he spoke to thought he had lost his mind and walked out of the room. The other half listened to him. And he said the following, you better give me half your money, because if you don't, we're going to have a revolution here, and you're not going to have any money at all. Mm-hmm. They were frightened. They gave him the money. Here's what he did, just to remind you. Mm-hmm. He created the social security system. This country had had absolutely no public pension system at all. So that was created in the middle of a Great Depression when the government had no money. It declared everybody who reaches the age of 65, we will give you a check every month for the rest of your life, no matter how long you live. Hmm. Number two, they passed the first minimum wage law. No employer can pay less. And in those days, It was a significant amount of money. Number three, they set up the first unemployment compensation program. If you lose your job for no reason of your own fault, just because the employer uh, can't sell what he produces, the government will give you for a year or two a weekly check. And then the fourth and final one. He went on the radio, Roosevelt did, and he said, anybody uh, who only asks for a job, if the private capitalist sector of this economy cannot or will not give you a decent paying job, then I as president will. And he immediately set about hiring roughly 15 million unemployed people, putting them to work, building and rebuilding across the U.S. When the left wing says it can't mobilize its people, or even if it did, it can't get improvements, those are improved. We still have Social Security. We still have unemployment compensation. And that's after the war was over and after Roosevelt is dead, 1945. The rest of our politics from then to now has been the concerted effort of the business community to undo everything that was done in the 1930s. And that that includes Trump and Biden and uh, Obama and all of them. That's our politics. And our left has to rebuild itself to be the next wave coming back and saying, oh, no, 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 no. And I don't, if you ask me, will it take another collapse like the 1930s to give us the momentum? Then the honest answer is maybe, 
Mm. And maybe that's where we are going. Mm. Because we are we are in an economy now, I really have to tell you, that is the worst I have seen. Every every so often, because I'm a graduate of Harvard and Yale and all I'm I'm part of the elite school system here, even though I'm not part of that by by my family or anything like that. I occasionally get together for the to drink a beer or to have a cup of coffee or something with these people that are otherwise I do not interact with them. And here's the interesting thing. We don't agree on how the United States got into its current situation, and we don't agree on how to get out of it. But we do agree on the following sentence. This is the worst condition of the American capitalist system that we have ever seen in our lifetimes. That's how bad this is. You have attacked the working class here on a scale that, you know, is understandable. The pendulum swings. The ruling class was so horrified by what happened in the 30s. Their taxes, their money used to help average people, you know, unthinkable. They may go too far. It often happens. Mm-hmm. And they are, they are in the process. They have redistributed the wealth here for 30 to 40 years. That's why we have more billionaires, mm-hmm. just like you. They have done. And then in the last four years, first, they hit the American working class with a depression in 2020. Very important to understand. The economy here crashed. By the way, it started crashing before COVID got here. You can call the crash COVID, but it's the mistake. It's a crash. Between in the years 2020 and 2021, over 80 million Americans went unemployed, lost their jobs. That's more than half. More than half the people were. Now, some of them were unemployed only a few weeks, some the whole time. But we've never had that before. More than half the people were unemployed, wiping out their savings, Mm. wiping out their sense of themselves. Uh, It's just awful. Then we had the pandemic where the response in this country was so bad that we've we've lost over a million people dead from COVID and tens of millions ill some of them suffering with what we call long COVID and so forth. Then we had, and we're still in it, a terrible inflation. Mm. And as I'm speaking to you, yesterday the Federal Reserve pushed up again the interest rates. The inflation is an attack on the working class. The depression was, the COVID failure was, now interest rates rising is another attack. You are consistently attacking a working class and I am very confident in telling you that the tolerance of this working class for this kind of abuse is coming to an end. You can already see it. That's why they voted for Trump. Mm. That's why we have the bitter divisions in this country. That is why the desperate people trying to hold on are rediscovering white supremacy, actually telling each other 
that the color of your skin is a sign of something significant. Uh, you know, that's a desperate behavior of desperate people who are terrified about what's looming around them. Americans are in that place now. And I, I can assure you, I, I can't tell you where the future lies. Nobody can. But I am telling you that capitalism has moved on. The dynamic center is in Asia at this point anyway. Um, and the, the problem in this country is it doesn't understand what's going on. And it practices mostly the sad skill that psychologists call denial, the mm. pretending that it isn't happening. Mm. And which is, by the way, again, just another way of saying that's what your celebration of the Queen's passing. You know, this idea about socialist society, uh, how this will look like? Can you give us a, some kind of picture of that society? Yes. Let me try to do it real quickly. The transition from one economic system to another has happened many times in human history. But one thing we learn when we study it, it's difficult, it's, it takes time, and it goes through many, let's call them experiments, before it figures out how to make the system work. So, for example, coming out of European feudalism, a system of lords and serfs and all of that, there were many experiments in a different system, a system which didn't have lords and serfs, but instead had employers and employees. Very different system. One used money, the other one didn't. One had wages, the other one didn't. One, one the, 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 the serf swore to, to be loyal to the Lord. The employee doesn't swear anything to the employer, etc. So very different systems. But in order for the transition to happen, if you study European history, you discover that this, an effort to make a, a switch happened in, in Belgium, happened in this way in Holland, happened this way in Scotland, happened this way in, in Spain or in Ireland or what? in lots of different places. Some of them didn't last more than a few weeks. Some lasted a few months and years. But it, they had to learn from the early experiments. This seemed to work, but this was terrible. So we got to learn to do more of that and less of that. Okay. The critique of feudalism is as old as feudalism itself. Serfs were rebelling against lords throughout its history. Workers, employees have been rebelling and mumbling and grousing against employers from day one. I mean, I've worked in many places. The one thing I can tell you is whether it's an ice cream parlor or a factory or an office or a university, the employees always have problems and criticisms of the employers. Okay. After a certain point, you develop a systematic criticism. You begin to realize it's not this particular thing. It's not that particular thing. It's really the way this is set up. A tiny group of people, the employer, could be the owner of the, of the business, the person who started it, could be a board of directors elected by shareholders. But it's a tiny group, 
They make all the decisions. They decide what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the product or the revenue from selling the product. And they make the decisions they want to. That's why they're the rich people, because they give themselves the bulk of the profits the business makes. You, the employee, you come there, you do what you are told, then you go home and you have a pizza and you come back the next day and you do that all again. You have no control. You participate in no significant way. The people at the top are not accountable to you. You never vote for them. Nothing. Mm. Okay. At a certain point, people began to figure out that's the problem. Just the way slaves Mm. at a certain point stopped saying, give us more food or give us a better shirt or give us a bed to lie down on. They began to realize the problem isn't the bed or the shirt, because behind that is the master and the slave. The problem is slavery. And then they become anti-slavery, and then it's over. Then it's only a matter of time. Well, we have that. We have a, a, a history in which the ideas of what's wrong with employer-employee have been developed. We have Karl Marx. Uh, we were lucky relatively soon after capitalism gets established, they produce a, a person who can pull it all together and say, here, this is the problem. This system has to go. And so people read that. That takes decades, and they think about it. And, and then we have the beginnings of experiments. First experiment, 1871, city of Paris. The workers rise up and take over the city. It only lasts a few weeks. Call the Paris Commune. If you've never heard of it, go look it up. Very exciting. Marx is still alive. So there's direct connection between Marx, who's sitting in London, and the Paris Commune over there. Okay, next experiment. 1917, Russia, the Russian Revolution. And then, as we all know, the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, North Korea, North Vietnam, and so on. These are all early experiments in trying to go further. And in those experiments, the key idea was the government. We, the people, have to get the government, either by winning elections or by making revolutions, one or the other. And there were great debates about which way to do that. But one way or another, we're going to seize the state, and the state is going to make sure to treat us much better than the capitalist employers ever did. They're going to give us free education, subsidized housing, regulated work situation. You know, you know what, what was done in certain ways in Russia, China, Cuba, etc. However, we also learned Russia fell apart after 70 years. So we have lessons to learn because obviously something they did didn't work. And we have to be honest and hard thinking about it. Number two, the government there not only managed the economy, but took on a lot more power over our daily lives. And many of us are comfortable. We have to learn that, yeah, we need this, but we can't give the government that much power. 
That has to be rooted in the people. That's a flaw in Russian experiment, Chinese experiment, and so on. So where are we now? Well, we've had a whole bunch of experiments. We have a lot to learn from. We have learned. Therefore, my answer to your question, in the 21st century, the one we're living at the beginning of now, socialism is going to take a different direction based on its own history. Hmm. It is going to be making critiques of capitalism. That is becoming easier because capitalism is having more and more difficulty. But the real key lesson is we didn't do something in all of the early experiments. And that missing something, we're going to make the, the key point for us now. And that missing something is we did not transform, or if you like better, revolutionize the workplace. The place where eight hours a day you go either into a factory, an office, a store, whatever you want to call the workplaces of society, could be a household, could be a farm, uh, that doesn't really matter. That had to be revolution, and we didn't do that. We took over the government, we made private property, collective property, we had planning instead of markets. We did big things, macroeconomic things, but we didn't transform. To, to be crude, instead of a board of directors of a company uh, elected by shareholders, they were government officials. The government sent them in. That's what the Russians did. That's what the Chinese do for, you know, a, a quarter to a third of their economy. That's the state-owned uh, and operated enterprises. What the Chinese permit to this day is that both in the state enterprises and in the private enterprises, and they have a huge private capitalist sector, Chinese and foreign capitalists, they don't revolutionize the workplace. Mm -hmm. And what would that mean, a socialist workplace? Answer, democracy. That's the irony. You mm -hmm. democratize the workplace, and the workplace becomes a community governed democratically by itself. Mm -hmm. Every worker has one vote. Whatever you do, one vote, and the majority rules what we're going to produce, how we're going to produce, where we're going to produce, and what we're going to do with the revenue that this enterprise generates. That's a democratically debated and decided operation. The workers, therefore, become their own employers. You have finally broken the pattern. Master slave, gone. Lord surface, serf, gone. Employer, employee, gone. Workers themselves running the enterprise. And in that, you will have found, I believe, the necessary partner for all the other changes that socialists have tried to make them produce a society that isn't uh, destroyed by too much power in the government because the power will be at the base. There will be no government that can that can survive without the workers in each enterprise sharing a tax payment or not doing it. And that's going to be decided workplace by workplace, year in and year. It's going to transform how these societies work. And I think it's it, it's going to grab the 
the imagination of, of working people because it's not a revolution that happens somewhere else. It's a revolution that happens in your daily life. You're going to be going to a workplace where you are not a drone. You are not told what to do. You are, by virtue that you're there, part of the leadership, part of the directorship of this enterprise. You're going to develop skills you didn't even know you had. You're going to be given an education that people like you and don't normally get. You're going to have a different sense of yourself. You're going to have a set of problems. This is not nirvana. This is not some fantasy of all our problems go away. Not at all. But it is a set of problems grounded on, ironically, what people already say they believe, that the democratic way of organizing communities is a better way to go than the autocratic that we come from. Here's the irony, and I don't know if this is as true in Britain as it is here. In the United States, democracy is the closest thing we really have to religion. Everybody says, oh, yes, democracy, democracy. You must say, you must face East 10 times a day, bend over and say democracy, more or less, right? So here's the irony. In the workplace, where most adults spend most of their life, there is no democracy. You cross the, the doorway into the office, the factory, the store, and some supervisor or executive tells you, sit there, do this, that, 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 that. Now go home, come back, uh, and tomorrow you're fired, don't come back. I mean, it's extraordinary. No claim to democracy, not even a shadow of democracy. And yet these same societies, which subject their people to the grotesque refusal of democracy five out of seven days of the week in their workplace insist on calling themselves democracies. President Biden tells the world that the war in Ukraine is for democracy, a quality that Mr. Biden wouldn't recognize if it came up and slapped him in the face. And look, I've been relatively fortunate even though I don't come from the ruling class, I went to all the universities and people are therefore, they defer to me. You know, I, I can say the Marxism, I can say the anti-capitalism and people feel that they are somehow obliged at least for a few minutes to listen, you mm. know, and that gives me the door, you know, the door is open and then I can. Mm. But I, I, let me be very honest with you also. I am having the time of my life. Mm. I have an, you know, I have 300,000 uh, YouTube followers who've signed up. I, you know, I do a weekly radio and television mm. program mm. that goes to millions of people. It's just an extraordinary time in America. And, you know, I didn't get them. They found their mm. way to what I do and they find it interesting. Week after week, I'm, I am frankly amazed because most of my life here in the United States, when I would say something political or economic, people would get nervous. Mm. They understood well enough where I was coming from, and they had learned in this culture that that's a dangerous place to be. And mm. so they would back away. They didn't leave. Again, because I have the pedigrees that they respect. 
mm. usually for the wrong reason. I mean, yeah. maybe we'll have another conversation one day, and if you're interested, I'll tell you about Harvard, Stanford, Yale, and those places. Those are mostly no more genuine than what we say here in this country is a $4 bill. Uh, we say that because there is no such thing. Um, so those institutions are there to cultivate inferiority complex in everybody who doesn't go. Nothing happens there. Nothing extraordinary is going on in any of them. And I spent 10 years of my life in Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. And, and I can assure you, mm. nothing extraordinary happens there. Nothing. It's just another college. Some teachers are good. Some teachers are awful. And most teachers are somewhere in between. I mean, nothing, mm. nothing. There's nothing going on. Mm. But, but they believe they are superior. And they acted, and they spend a lot of money to promote that idea so that an awful lot of other people feel inferior. If you're a professor at the university, I'll pick something, Tennessee, you spend an entire lifetime feeling inferior to anybody who comes from Harvard or Yale. And this is complete, this is wrong, this is not right. I know people on both sides. Uh, I can assure you for every idiot in, in Tennessee, uh, there are at least an equivalent idiot at Harvard and Yale. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. And if you really push me, I'll take you and I'll introduce you to them. <laughs> you, can form your own, you can form your own judgment. Uh, like one of my plan is I will invite you to Scotland and you stay with me. Okay. Just you no know, do things, you no know, go around and also talk and then you know document our story. If we can ever manage it, I would love to go see where Adam Smith, you know, did his work. And you know why? Because Marx, there's a there's a set of volumes by Marx called Theories of Surplus Value, and mm. in the in three volume work. What it is are Marx's notebooks where he kept his notes when he read other economists. So there's a huge section of his notes on Adam Smith. And Marx there is very complimentary, very respectful. Here are the enormous achievements of... So when I read that, that's why I read... I went and got The Wealth of Nations... And I worked my way through that because Marx recommended it. And when I read it, I understood and agreed with why Marx. So I come out of a tradition. Mm. Am I a Marxist? Well, if it means taking Marx's work seriously and being grateful for what he taught me, yes, I am. Mm. But I would say the same thing about Adam Smith. I'm mm. grateful for the things he, ta he taught me. He taught Marx. And so he's a, one of the great thinkers who brings us to the ability to understand. And mm. much of what I've talked with you about today comes out of Adam Smith, too. Mm. He's part of that, just as, as Marx is. Mm. And I would urge anyone listening, it is no achievement to be ignorant of Marx. That's not smart. That's not patriotic. You know what that is? Stupid. Yeah. This man has a lot to teach you, 
and you have a lot to learn. And if you don't do it, it is the intellectual equivalent of going into the woods on a camping trip, refusing to take any matches at all, and insisting that you can rub sticks together and start a fire, and no one told you that it only works if it hasn't been raining recently. Hmm. Professor, one last question. This is a personal okay. personal question. Is if you are asked to bring three people from history and go for a dinner, I know you will pick Karl Marx. You might right. pick Adam Smith. Who will be the third person? Uh, I probably would not have picked Adam Smith, although I'd be very happy if he were at this dinner. Yeah, I would pick Marx's teacher. Uh, I would pick uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. Oh <laughs> and the reason is Hegel figured out mm. how the process of human thinking works. Uh, what we nowadays tend to call epistemology, a mm. branch of philosophy. Marx was his student. Marx absorbed that. And a good bit of what Marx was able to figure out, he was able to figure out because of what he had learned from Hegel. This concept of Hegel, which he calls contradiction, that would transform uh, our dinner. And I tell you who is the third one that I would invite. It is a student of Marx and Hegel. He's no longer with us either, so he'd have to come back from wherever Marx and Hegel are. A French philosopher named Louis Althusser, a Marxist uh, in France, named the spelling A-L-T-H-U-S-S-E-R. He struggled with Marx and Hegel, and every, by the way, he only died in the 19, Jesus, mm. 1980s, maybe in the 1990s, so not very long ago. Mm. Um, lots of books published, all translated into English. Mm. The New Left, the New Left books are published in London and so on. But if you're interested, go get it. It's, it's re- yeah. absolutely, definitely. Re- he has a book of essays called, um, for Marx and another book, uh, a lot of essays, but of his own work called Reading Capital. Both are available in English, both published by New Left Books in London. Um, he would be the third one because he would be a wonderful uh, person to talk with his teachers, Hegel and Marx. We might all be kind of flies on the wall there, but it would be an amazing dinner. Thank you so much, Professor. My pleasure.